up, goes down, kick, roll left, roll right, better left, better right, better center. In the air and on air, the Renegade Aviator combines jet airshow performances and this radio show to promote aviation, excellence, overcoming obstacles, and achieving goals. Thunderbird 1, Ellis Tower, runway 2 and right at Delta, line up away. Thunderbird departure quick climb to 12000 to include the loop is on request. Thunderbird 1, line up away, runway 2 and right at Delta. 1, line just up, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Take a runway four on two off. Get a bus. We take off four one one. Five six. This is the Renegade Aviator Radio Show with Dave Costa. Now be a loop on takeoff right hand turn out. Yeehaw! Now be taking off for a high show. High show two three four five six. Thunderbird one Thunderbird departure quick climb to one two thousand to include the loop is approved runway two and right at taxiway Delta wind zero five zero at six gusting one six clear for takeoff change to departure. Almost over, take off runway 2 and right at Delta. Quick climb, 12,000 to include the loop approved. Thunderbirds push 5. Thunderbirds front them up. Burgers out, ready now. Back in the back, back in the right. On back. Glides on top, 90150, back in with the pull. In the air and on air, here he is, the renegade aviator, David Costa. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is David Costa, the Renegade Aviator. Hey, a couple of housekeeping issues right off the bat because this show goes freaky fast, and I hope that Jimmy Johns doesn't sue me over that. I've got a very special guest today, speaking of fast, and I'm going to introduce him right after this. For now, I want you to imagine the number eight and just hold that number in your head. So let me do some housekeeping real quick. Two things. Number one. How do you help the air show effort? Right now, we're running our May Day Save Our Air Shows campaign, and it's all about holding what our passion is and to make sure that it comes back. So this show is all about air shows. Why air shows? Real simple, guys and gals, because air shows are about excellence demonstrated. Air shows are about overcoming obstacles, achieving goals. Air shows is about passion. Regardless of your passion, people get inspired by air shows. But again, wait until you see who I have for you today. Join my crew and support what we do. Go to Renegade AV, the number 8R, RenegadeAviator.com. Click the Mayday link and find out more for yourself. I believe in personal responsibility. So go ahead and click that link. RenegadeAviator.com, the Mayday link. Number two. What does a frustrated former U.S. Marine do when air shows get canceled in 2020? We go and bust some world records. That's what we do. So boomers like me, check six. There are Zoomers on our tail. Check this out. Take a jet over a half century old. Knock down world records that have stood for over a half century. Flown by a pilot over a half century old. Take new ideas, new technology, new ways of solving problems and new leadership and make it happen with the new generation of aerospace pros. Go to my website, renegadeaviator.com and click on the world record link. All right, ladies and gentlemen, each and every week, my show starts with radio calls from a military jet team. And this week, ladies and gentlemen, on my wing, the ambassadors in blue, U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds, advanced pilot narrator, Thunderbird number eight, Major Jason Markson, call sign Flack. Major Markson, welcome to the Renegade Aviator Radio Show. Hey, David, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. 
1-3-double-eight, transition for 6,500, Thunderbirds, push, channel 2. Right on, man. I really appreciate you coming on as well. The uh, Thunderbirds for many. Anybody goes to an air show, military jet teams by far are the number one attraction. And the first question we get whenever we talk to any of the military pilots, especially someone like yourself, a U.S. Air Force Thunderbird, a little bit about yourself and how you got started in aviation. People love that. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and I graduated in 2002 from high school. So uh, we all can remember what happened the my senior year. So fall of 2001, that's when 9-11 happened. Obviously, pretty significant emotional event for everybody at the time. But uh, as a high school kid who woke up early in the morning to see something like that on the news, parents are kind of just in shock. It's really all we talked about when we got to school that day. But even before that happened, I had an inclination to serve, a desire to serve. I'd always been interested in space and becoming an astronaut. And so kind of the natural stepping stone for me, at least from what I found, was to join the Air Force, go be a test pilot, go be an astronaut sort of thing. So that was sort of uh, in the back of my mind. And then 9-11 happened. I had kind of boosted that desire to serve. So leaving high school, I knew I was going to join Air Force ROTC. I went to Arizona State University. I started ROTC there. Tried for a scholarship, didn't get a scholarship my first year, and really was just kind of feeling things out. To be honest, I wasn't super excited about this whole change and going into the military and all of a sudden having to cut my hair and follow all these uniform regs and everything like that. So my first year was a little bit rough in ROTC. (laughs) You get used to that stuff pretty quick, let me tell you. After the years kind of kept going, between your second and third year, they send you to what's called field training. It's sort of officer basic training, if you will. And that's about four weeks long. And really after that is kind of when they expect you to like sign at the dotted line and commit to the Air Force. Around that time was really kind of when I decided that uh, being a pilot was something that I wanted to do. I studied aerospace engineering in college. So I was very interested in airplanes, uh, aviation and space and everything like that. After that second or third year in ROTC, I really wanted to get a pilot slot, but turns out I didn't get a pilot slot. So your third year in ROTC, towards the end of the year, that's when they assign you a rated position or you know pilot slot, navigator, something like that. So when those all came out, there was no, Jason Markson's name was not on the list. So that was a real bummer for me. So really the lesson learned there is like, hey, what are you going to do now to overcome that obstacle? And so I just started thinking of ways that I could make myself better so I could try to become a pilot, maybe on active duty, because I knew that uh, happened to do a couple people who did that. So when I started my senior year, I started taking flying lessons. And when I had my first flight, I was like absolutely hooked and was like, okay, this is definitely something I want to do now. And there was no need for extra motivation. That was all I needed. So the senior year was pretty normal progression. I kept doing my flight training. I started uh, really focusing on my physical fitness because I knew if I wanted to be a fighter pilot, I had to be physically fit. And I just kept trying to do the best I could uh, with my grades. And towards the end of the school year, probably about two weeks before I graduated, My commander called me into his office and said, you know, hey, 
senior year is coming up. Uh, you know, everything's going all right. Oh, what happened with that pilot slot thing? I'm kind of thinking like, well, he knows I didn't get one. Like, what is he asking? <laughs> well, it, it never happened, sir. Um, and I don't really know if I was on an alternate list or whatever. And he's like, oh, well, I just talked to headquarters or whatever he said. And he's like, and you're next on the list and we want to make you a pilot. And, uh, you know, it might delay your commission a little little bit, but we still want to do that. Um, that is if you're interested. And he, he says that and I'm like, <laughs> you know, jaw drops to the floor. I'm like in shock. I don't answer him for, I don't know, it, it probably was only a couple seconds. But like to me, just like time slowed down. I was like, are you serious? This is happening right now? I think I even asked him. That. I was like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah. And I said, absolutely. You couldn't wipe the smile off my face for a week. You know, all my friends were like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I was like, dude, you have no idea. So that was two weeks before I graduated college and commissioned. And that just got the entire ball rolling. I was supposed to go to Eglin Air Force Base and I was going to be a developmental engineer until that happened. And so they sent me through the medical process and I passed that no problem. It delayed my commissioning a little bit, at least in ROTC, usually you graduate. And then uh, you also commissioned within that same week. I ended up graduating college and then uh, commissioned a couple months later. So really not that big of a deal. It's totally worth it. Totally worth it as far as like the process uh, and everything because the ROTC like owns you until you commission, then active duty owns you. So anyways, as far as like the logistics and the processing goes, delaying the commissioning wasn't that big of a deal. And then uh, they sent me, so I went to school at uh, Arizona State in Tempe. They sent me all the way across the town to Luke Air Force Base for my first assignment, which is kind of, you know, you join the Air Force, you're like, I'd really like to go see other places. But in this case, they sent me across the street to Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix. And uh, it ended up could being a... Could have walked a, there. Yeah. <laughs> could have. It would have taken me a couple of days, but I could have. The cool thing <laughs> that it ended up being a real blessing in disguise because I got to spend time with my aunt and uncle who live in Phoenix and I stayed with them. And Luke was the home of the F-16B course, the basic course where everybody learns to fly F-16. So when I was there, I was in and amongst, you know, student fighter pilots in the F-16, a bunch of instructors, and just F-16s flying around all over the place really kind of solidified the fact that I wanted to fly an F-16. And uh, I even got to sandbag a couple of sorties. So I was flying with, in the backseat with instructors while they were um, instructing the students. So I got maybe about 20 of those mm. while I was doing that. And it was just incredible. I couldn't believe I, I got to do that, despite the fact that I was still basically in my hometown and doing that. I spent about a year there in Phoenix before I left for uh, pilot training. One thing that I don't want to skip over is initial flight screening, which they do in Pueblo, Colorado. And so you fly the DA-20, which I describe it as like a lighter with a lawnmower engine. Yeah. So you fly the DA-20 there, and it's really just kind of uh, introduction to how actual pilot training is going to work. It was a lot of fun. I had my private pilot's license at the time. And so flying the airplane wasn't that big of a deal. It was just getting used to all of the processes that you do in, in pilot training. And so when you go to pilot training, you get used to working 12 hours a day, the type of studying that is kind of expected of you, the emergency procedure stand-up that we do where you stand up by yourself on one end of the table and your instructor pilot stands up on the other side of the table and he kind of grills you a bunch of general knowledge questions and emergency procedures kind of gives you a scenario how you're going to handle it and so you're standing up at the end of the table and you're kind of like you know you're shaking a little bit but you don't want anybody to see that 
and your head is inside the cloud of knowledge is what I like to call it, where you all of a sudden forget everything that you've ever learned in the airplane. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I always tell people is peer pressure sometimes is a very powerful and good thing. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. And it sort of simulates uh, the pressure that you would experience in the airplane if something like that really happened. So there's a method to the madness and it helps you like walk through a procedure methodically thinking about it and you learn the procedures and uh, the systems and everything while you go through it. So back in with the pull. Pull up. Altitude. Altitude. Anyways, pilot training for the Air Force. You start in the T6 and you spend uh, four to six months in that. And then what you do is you track select into either T-38s, T-1s, helicopters. And when I was going through, it was T-44s and that's where they'd send you for the C-130. I don't think they do that anymore. But anyway, I did the T-6 and... At the time that I went through, they were holding students back. So they'd basically experience an extended break in training up to sometimes even a year because there were just tons of fighter pilots. And so it was actually pretty difficult to get a fighter slot at that time. So we didn't know how many people. There were 30 of us in the class. We didn't know how many people were actually going to get fighter slots. But after T6s, there ended up only being two T-38 slot. So the going to the T-38 typically means you're going to go fly a fighter or bomber or in some cases a special ops aircraft. So we only ended up getting two of those T-38 slots in my wow. entire class of 30 people, which was incredible. And I was lucky enough to be one of those two. And then because we didn't have a very large class, we actually had to wait three weeks for the next class to track select. And they only had two people as well. So there were only four assignable students. We also had four Italian students in our class and they kind of automatically were going to the T-38. So that was actually pretty cool getting to spend that year pilot training with them. But we only had four uh, assignable T-38 students in that position. And so the T-38 training is again, another four months long. And what you do during that is you fly a lot more formation you kind of up the notch a little bit on instrument and navigation procedures and training. And at the end of all that, you come out with wings and you graduate. So you pass all your check rides and everything. And at the end of my pilot training, we got uh, four assignable. There was only one fighter that was actually assigned to our class. So again, a tough time to get a fighter when I was going through. And I didn't get it. My buddy ended up finishing ahead of me. So I was number two in the class, and I ended up getting a T-38 first assignment instructor pilot, or FAPE as we call it. So I became a T-38 FAPE. We got a T-6 FAPE, and we also had a UAV or an RPA assigned to us. So at that time, that was kind of like a rough drop as far as getting a, assignments for that time. I'm sitting here listening to this, right? So probably at that time, you had no idea that you're going to be a U.S. Air Force Thunderbird, right? So probably looking back, having flack look backwards a little bit, you know, you're going, man, the ups and the downs of what you went through, the maybe I could get this, and then you come into an obstacle, and then you think all is lost, right? And then something else cool happens. And how many people in life will quit before they realize what's next. And I always tell people that there's good stuff ahead, man. Just don't ever slow down. Don't ever quit. Always be in excellence instead of blaming, right? Because drinking out of the fire hose is military training, regardless what your MOS. Yeah. But now 
fast forward, how does the training at the Thunderbirds compare to training on in a line unit? I was almost going to say a fleet unit, but that's because yeah. I'm a former U.S. <laughs> Marine. Sorry. I want to hold it against you. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, it's vastly different. Going from fire hose, pilot training, they're just throwing everything at you. you got a stack of books that's half your height that you have to learn. And you're just learning the basics of flying an airplane, right? And then you jump into your fighter assignment. You jump into your B course. It's not about learning to fly the airplane. It's now learning how to employ it. Because one day you may be asked to actually take that aircraft, fly it to a location where you need to employ weapons. And so you need to know the ins and outs of the weapon system, how to manipulate the controls to get yourself into the right weapons engagement zone. It's not just you employing weapons. You also have to defend yourself because there may be somebody trying to employ weapons on you. So you need to learn all those different tactics, techniques, and procedures. The book study never changes. I just exchanged one stack of books for another stack of books. Instead of learning about uh, how to fly an airplane, it was now about tactics and everything. That's like a, a normal CAF unit or combat air force unit. And then coming to the Thunderbirds, you're kind of learning how to fly an airplane again, but you're learning really how to uh, employ the airplane in a regime that you've never flown it before, flying anywhere from 18 inches to three feet away from the next person while you're doing a loop, while you're doing a roll, learning how to manipulate the controls so you stay in position and, and you look good uh, to the crowd, flying probably lower than you've ever flown before while you're inverted. All those things that you don't learn that stuff in pilot training. You have to build your experience level and everything for that before you get there. It's a whole different mind shift that you have to go through. But coming from the F-16 background, I have about a 1,000 hours in the F-16 now. And coming from that background, it makes it a little bit easier to transition to it. Some of the guys on the team that weren't F-16 background, where they have to go through a transition course to learn how to fly the F-16, and then they come to the team, it can be a little bit more challenging for them to get uh, as proficient as uh, everybody else who comes from an F-16, but you get the hang of it. The F-16's digital control, fly-by-wire system, side stick. So the inputs, I think, are pretty easy to learn once you do it a couple times. And then you're just really working on finessing it and perfecting it and really finding the precise way to fly the airplane so we can execute that demonstration the entire time. The difference of performing and the level of trust to do what you're doing because you're doing basic Air Force maneuvers that all fighter pilots would do, but you're doing them at a much higher level of expertise. How does the level of trust have to change, if any, and maybe the value of critiquing each other? How do you hold each other accountable to a high level of excellence like you do at the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds? Yeah, it's sort of a fighter pilot culture. One of the things that we hold dear to us is the brief and debrief. And the debrief is really where we learn from everybody. The rank sort of comes off at that point, and you really get into the nitty-gritty of how you did this, how you did that, how we can make things better. Did you realize you made this mistake? This is how we can fix it for next time. So that's one of the ways that we hold ourselves accountable for making things better. I didn't understand how detailed the Thunderbirds got in their debrief until I actually applied and was an applicant and was sitting in the debrief. And I was like, wow, this is pretty detailed for just flying a demonstration. That just goes to show like how precise, not just the Thunderbirds are, but how precise the Air Force is about getting better and learning. And then right along with that is trust. Like you cannot go into a debrief without trusting that the person, your wingman or your flight lead is going to give you that feedback. 
that they're going to make you better. It's all in the hopes of, of making everybody better. There's no personal attacks that we're trying to, to get out. It's all just to make everybody better. And so the training that we go through during the training season, where we start with just a two-ship formation, two jets out there flying close together, you're trusting that that guy that's leading you through that loop. So when boss is leading you through that loop and all you're doing is staring at the wing, you're not cross-checking the ground, you're not cross-checking airspeed, you're not cross-checking any of your parameters, really. You're just staring at that wing, trying to stay in formation position, and you're trusting that boss is going to take you all the way up, hit his correct parameters, make sure the G is correct, not going to leave you hanging out to dry, uh, not going to do any abrupt maneuvers, all the way through the backside of that loop, pull the loop gently through the bottom, and finish where you started while avoiding the ground is something that takes a little bit of getting used to, but there's no way we can do it without trusting each other, especially when you start adding four jets and then you have six jets all together. What I tell people who come out to air shows, why air shows, why are air shows so important? Why should people that aren't even pilots come out and look up into the sky and see this? And it's part of the reason for this show to bring people like you together here with the fan, because it's easy to look up and see the results. And you can point to excellence, right? We can all point to excellence. We know it when we see it. But I think people in their lives, whether they're at a job, whether they're going after, whether they want to be a ballet dancer or an astronaut, the level of humbling that occurs, the level of trial and error, and that ability to be critiqued. And I tell people, don't get discouraged when somebody appears to be grinding you or critiquing you. Take it, thank them, right? Because I was shocked as well when I started, you know, I'm a former U.S. Marine Corps special ops guy. I was a sniper and I did some other stuff. So we were kind of lone wolves. When I started flying with other U.S. military pilots, when I bought this experimental jet that I fly, I was dumbfounded when they started critiquing me. And that's nothing compared to the critiques you go through. But that's so valuable. And I think people miss out in life of the value of critique from your peers and people who've been there, done that. Am I off base? No, that's the only way you're going to get better is by learning from those that have uh, accomplished everything and your instructors who know kind of how it's supposed to look, how it's supposed to feel. There's no way to get better without having that sort of feedback and that critiquing. Right on. So you started off with, uh, you mentioned something that I wanted to do as a, as a kid and I learned the hard way and didn't, you know, should have, could have, would have being an astronaut. We just launched, you know, SpaceX and, you know, Crew Dragon. Is that still on your radar? Is that something you still want to maybe do into the future? Yeah. So I actually applied this year to become an astronaut. NASA was uh, asking for applications. And so I threw my name in the hat of 12,000 people that have applied. Right on. We'll see. I got the technical background as far as uh, the degree goes. And uh, I've got a bunch of experience as far as flying fighter jets go. I'm not a test pilot like my good friend is who also applied. So he better get it uh, for sure. But I applied. So I hope. One can hope. You got to keep dreaming, right? You got to keep reaching for it. Well, you absolutely do. And you have to take that first step, right? So the first step is uh, it's not only hope, but you've actually got to fill the application out, which you've already done. So that's a step. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I was listening to a podcast uh, this this morning on my way into work, and they were kind of talking about mindset. And you mentioned a joke. Was this guy 
wanted to win the lottery really bad. And so he kept praying. I want to win the lottery. I uh, kept praying and praying and praying. Anyway, so he passes away and he's at the gates and he says, God, why didn't – kept praying to win the lottery. He's like, why didn't I get the win? And God says, well, you never bought a lottery ticket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the point being like you can't reach the end of your goal just by by hoping and wishing. You have to take the steps to get there. And just like you said, it starts with that first step putting that application together and, and making that submission. You never know what's going to happen. That's quite literally the only way I got a pilot slot, even though I was told I wasn't going to. I got a fighter slot, even though initially I was told you're not going to be a fighter pilot. And it even took me a couple tries with the Thunderbirds before I made this team. You just got to keep pushing through it. Excellent. So when you first applied into the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds, what got you into that mindset to say, I want to be a Thunderbird my first F-16 assignment was in Korea. Uh, I spent uh, 18 months at Osan, part of the uh, 36th Fighter Squadron, Haram. And then I went to Japan, and I was in uh, part of the 13th Fighter Squadron in Misawa, CP. And so when I was uh, in Misawa, when I went to Misawa, uh, a couple of my buddies from um, my time on the Fiends in Korea, they had made the team. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I had never thought, like, Thunderbird was never on my you know, dream sheet or whatever. Uh, but I started thinking about it and, and the application email came across uh, my inbox and I was like, Hmm, let me look at this. And so I reached out to my friend, asked him, Hey, how is it? Do you like it? Is this something you enjoy? And he's like, if you're even considering applying, he's like, you should definitely apply. It's one of the best jobs I've ever had. So I started looking at the whole process and the application. I put it together and I applied and, uh, I was fortunate enough to get brought out for a semifinalist interview and a finalist interview. And then I was told that I didn't make the team. So it was a real bummer at that point and continued on with my life, figured out, uh, you know, how I can continue to build experience and make my background better so, for the next year. And so the next year, obviously I made it, but the desire to be on the team really it came down to, I thought back to all those people who kind of helped me get to where I was at along the way and really what uh, foundation of it all was people were just helping me out. And I really wanted to find a way to kind of give back and help out that next person who, you know, might be in my shoes that is thinking about becoming a, an astronaut or whatever. And it's just like, I don't have all of the qualifications to that check every single thing. It's like, it doesn't matter. You should still apply if it's something you want to do because you never know what they're looking for. You never know what the Thunderbirds might be looking for 10 years from now when I'm long gone from the team. You never know. You never know what the Air Force is looking for when it comes to pilots. I mean, look at it right now. We're at a, a fighter pilot shortage. We need pilots. So, Are they bringing back 60-year-old uh, guys to fly? If they are, I'll volunteer. <laughs> no, there's, you know, <laughs> there's a waiver for everything. Here. There's a waiver for everything. There you go. You know, evil, evil-tempered, mean-spirited former jarheads flying an F-16. That'll be funny. Yeah. <laughs> right on. And that's why a big part of what you do in the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds, I mean, it's recruiting. It's trying to get young people say, look, you know, the military is a viable option. I mean, I get it. I was the same way. If you look at me, I look more like a biker than I do a former jarhead. So you come out of this civilian world into the military world and the value of a military career obviously part of the reason why the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels and the Snowbirds are out there flying. So here we're at COVID-19, right? The famed COVID-19, and you guys transitioned 
instead of sitting back, you transition to the America Strong, which for those of you that don't know what that is, it was where you guys are flying over, you know, hospitals and things like that. And uh, it was really a buzz when you got to fly together with the uh, U.S. Navy Blue Angels. And now you're transitioning back to flying that demo. So what kind of challenges has that brought to the team? And if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of insight of uh, how the pros are doing it, how do you take that big change, reset, and get ready to rock and roll again? Yeah, I I think one of the most remarkable things of the America Strong effort was the fact that we were able to show our resiliency in this entire air show season that kind of happened, you know, coronavirus took it out, not just us, you know, the whole air show industry in our little world, but as an extension of the entire country and the world. But the resiliency uh, that people have and, and specifically here on the team to kind of shift our mindset, shift our mission to, hey, we do air shows and we go out, but now we can't do that. How can we still go recruit, retain and inspire and hopefully just bring a little bit of joy to everybody and That's kind of what evolved into the America Strong effort that we did. And that was incredible. Great response. We were able to bring people together without actually bringing them physically together. It was a way that we could get people out of their houses, uh, onto their roofs, if you will, to just experience a moment of connectedness and togetherness. And so that was an amazing way we shifted our mission set and our mindset. And that was tough. It was not easy to do, but we did it. And now coming back to Nellis, come back home, really kind of starting our practices again for the show season. You go basically a month without flying a demonstration practice, you lose a lot of those skills. So you kind of start back on a stepping stone scale to build those blocks of training experience. You've done the maneuvers before, so you know how to accomplish them. So you don't have to relearn them necessarily. You just have to regain your proficiency at it. And so you start with those building blocks again. And and that's what we did. The solos went out there by themselves and they just practiced their solo maneuvers. And then the diamond went out by themselves and they would do part task trainers, practice a a portion of the demonstration. And then after a couple times of doing that, you bring the whole show back together. You bring the Delta together and you start doing timing again and you start doing grading, the centers and the formations and everything. And uh, now we're back in the full swing of everything and doing full demos. We're about to bring uh, the music out to the range to practice uh, our music hits and narration. So I actually get back on the mic and I get to talk again. It's a challenge to continue to shift that. It takes a toll on just your psyche uh, mentally uh, and physically. It's physically demanding to double turn these shows Number three, he put it best when he says, for 40 minutes, you're just staring at the wingtip of an airplane, just trying to stay in position. And so it's that's just physically demanding. And to do that twice a day, it drains you. By the end of the week of doing that, eight times a week doing that, you're exhausted at the end of that week. So once we can get uh, back and we develop that proficiency, then you can start taking some of those mental breaks. But it is incredible, I think, the resiliency of the team to be able to shift from air shows, no air shows, flyovers, America Strong, shifting back into we're doing normal training while we're adhering to the COVID-19 CDC guidelines of social distancing and masks and things like that. 
That was one of the other questions, I guess. And again, you got to take what I say as a grain of salt. Typical jarhead is like, ah, heck, we're not going to do any of that stuff. So we just kind of run around like a bull in a china shop. But you've got other challenges now. So you've got an already very challenging training environment and you're adding into these other things. So it has to have caused a little bit of confusion. And I think, and this is just me thinking this, so correct me if I'm wrong, would it be almost tougher to fly the America Strong stuff? Because part of the air show is, and you as a narrator, there's something, right? It's that energy and that spark that only that crowd standing on the line. So, you know, a big part of the air show, sure, it's the guys and gals flying, but it's also you and your narration role. You're an F-16 pilot. You're part of the Thunderbirds, just like that role you play, where I think some people, I don't think they understand the role of the narrator because that really makes that show pop. It's just like the music. It's an element, and it needs to be choreographed. And I'm sure it's not just, hey, I'm just uh, winging this thing. You probably practice to get that timing down as an idiot like me on the radio. Uh, you're an actual pro at this to time that in. So is that a challenging spot to be in, I guess? I appreciate the nod to the narrator. We don't get enough love, I, I, <laughs> probably. We could do an entire show if you about just narration if you wanted to. But on surface level, you don't really think much. You're just like, oh, cool, that's just another added piece to it. But I feed off of the energy of the crowd and trying to inject some of that energy. It is difficult when it's last half of the season and you're tired and you did a show or previous day got canceled because it got rained out or whatever happened, wins. To wake up and do that with tons of energy the same way every single day, it is challenging, but I do feed off the energy of the crowd. I can feel it. like I can sense if the crowd is really into it or if they're not. And so you do have to adjust a little bit on the fly there pun intended, to like figure out, okay, what words can I say or how can I emphasize these certain things? Or is there music that I can play that will get the crowd involved? That's actually probably one of the greatest tools that we have that my DJs use to get some energy back in the crowd is when we're at a place, we'll find a local song or or maybe a popular uh, artist from the area that will download some music and uh, play that to one of the maneuvers. And usually that gets kind of people going. I'll, I'll turn around, look at the crowd. I'll see some people dancing or whatever, or, which is pretty cool to see. And so when I look, turn around and I see that and I see the crowd kind of excited, especially when I see like kids like staring up into the sky and just pointing and just like an awe on their face, it really gives me the energy to continue uh, putting so much effort and energy into the narration, into the music to make sure that uh, it really kind of brings the whole show together. It's like a live movie, right? Because everybody today is used to going on to YouTube. It's really easy. Anybody can hop in their airplane, put a camera in there, and in post-production, add music, right? But this is live. so And that's what's so cool about it, because people tell me I get goosebumps watching the Thunderbirds fly. And sure, it's the airplanes, but it is what you're doing there as well. That music timed correctly, you'll see heads turn, the tonality in your voice. It's that drawing attention because, as you and I well know, half of what we do in the air, they may not all be looking. So 
you are that attention grabber. I always say interrupt, engage, educate, offer. I'm a sales guy, so, you know, (laughs) you're that engagement part of that, right? That bringing that human voice, a real Thunderbird is talking to us. It's not a radio guy. It's the real deal. So, first of all, thank you for that because I think that's what makes these live events and why I'm such a fan of air shows in general because of the entertainment value um, from a pilot like yourself that's trained as a combat warrior, but also bringing it home to those kids. I appreciate it. I really do. A lot of people, I think when you apply to the team, I don't think the number eight position sounds very appealing to everybody, but I'll tell you, it's the best position on the team. And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise because they're lying to you. Well, you know what? But that's a decision, right? And so this, we talk about these again, young and old, we all have decisions. Look, I want to be part of this team and this is how I've been uh, informed or how I've been chosen. And this is how I provide value. And it's a decision to say what I'm to do in life, whether it's stocking grocery shelves or being a part of the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds, you make a decision. Am I going to be a value to this organization or am I not? You're not born this way. We're all not hatched. We're we're hatched, and then we're tasked with making decisions. That's what pilots do. Every part of the flight, when you fly the F-16, you make a series of decisions, of choices, and you take responsibility for that. So it goes back to any kind of team sport, any kind of team environment, whether you're in the military, and look at the amount of the enlisted people that help you out with those aircraft. You can't do what you do without every element of the team no matter what their role. And it doesn't give you any variance. Excellence doesn't care what the title is, I guess. It's a very good way to put it. Little more. Oh. Right on. So something that you mentioned, no need for extra motivation when you make a decision and you know what it is you want to do. People sometimes will look and say, you know, I need to be motivated or I'm just not doing X, Y, or Z because I'm not motivated to do it. And those are decisions And what you're talking about is this mindset, right? And taking those next steps. We hear this over and over and over again from people who have achieved. And and we hear the other thing I want to mention is this helping someone else. So what I say to people at air shows all the time, whatever it is you want to do in your life, make a decision, be grateful, help somebody else. You want to get over your depression and feeling sorry for yourself because you didn't get what you want to do. Go help somebody because everybody's got that value to to kind of give back. And certainly the Air Force Thunderbirds give value to the air show community. I talk about the new normal needs to be the old normal. We need to get back out there standing shoulder to shoulder because nothing beats watching a bunch of fast jets come overhead and uh, doing sneak attacks. And I remember to this day, this was a long time ago, put it this way, it was old enough where the Thunderbirds were flying the F-4 Phantom. So... <laughs> Got it. It was. uh, Got it. I won't say the year. Yeah, I'm kind of old there. But what made an impact in my life was I shook the hand of Thunderbird One at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Roger Parrish. I'll never forget it. It was something that motivated. So what you're doing has an impact. It really does. So thank you, first of all, because you and the team are having an impact on people. So I think your second year with the team, is that correct? Correct. It is my second year. What's kind of the highlight? for you of your tenure with the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds? Well, David, surprise, it is not over yet. The team's actually going to do another third year. They're holding this over for a third year, so I'll be here next year. Right on. That's cool. So I got a whole year to figure it out, but so far, being able to kind of 
fly across this country and see just these little gems in different regions that I would never have even thought about visiting and, and meeting the people and just going, wow, this is an awesome location. I never would have thought to come and visit Rochester, New York. Never really thought about going up there. It was beautiful. I loved it. The people were amazing. It was just a, a great show. There's amazing. But there's cities like that all over this great country. And just being able to do that and meet those people and interact with the local community and just hear their stories, it doesn't get much better. You really regain your faith in humanity by doing that. Absolutely. You said it wonderfully because when you get out and meet real people, differences fade away. We're more alike than we'd like to believe. And and we are a nation of really, really good people. Actually, I think this year's show, uh, you guys were supposed to be out at the Minden or Aviation Roundup out in Minden, uh, Nevada. And um, I was scheduled to fly just prior to you. So when you come back to Minden, I'll make sure that I look you up and you make sure that you look me up. I got a big hangar. We always have barbecues and parties and stuff there. But uh, I was really looking forward this year. I was flying just before you. So they put the uh, old slow jet up before the really cool, pretty fast jets. <laughs> it's, I don't know what they're trying to make fun of me or something. <laughs> trying to lull the crowd into, <laughs> yeah. into watching. That's like, what it is. Well, that was really boring. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for something really interesting, here's the Thunderbirds. <laughs> One thousand. Show set up. Power coming up. Power coming right on up. Stand by the brakes. Speed brakes in. Ready now. Right turn. Stand by gear. Here now. Flack, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on to the Renegade Aviator Radio Show. It's been fun. Uh, if you guys are ever in our neck of the woods or you're here personally, give me a holler. Um, we are here to be of service to you in any way we can. And, uh, man, I just can't, can't thank enough. And I also want to thank Captain Nelson, your PAO, Thunderbird 12, that helped set this up. So I, don't, I want to make sure she gets kudos as well. Major Markson, ladies and gentlemen, Thunderbird number eight, advanced pilot and the narrator for the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds call sign, Flack. Flack, thank you so much. Absolutely, David. Appreciate it. And if anybody uh, needs more information, you can check us out at www.afthunderbirds.com. You can also follow us on any of the social medias at AF Thunderbirds, and you can check me out at Thunderbird.8. Right on, and we'll make sure we copy that and put it on a couple times during the show so we can get people out to those sites. Do you guys also have a YouTube channel, or is any other media sites, or is it mainly through that main website? Yeah. Oh, the YouTube channel is um, U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds. If you search Air Force Thunderbirds, it, it should come up. Right on. You can access it from the main site, uh, afthunderbirds.com. Instagram is probably the most active social media that we got right on sir excellent i really do appreciate it yeah absolutely no this is fun we barely scratched the surface there are a billion other things so thanks for keeping me on track yeah no no and i'll just start going off on tangents so i appreciate it it's always an open door i mean if you guys got something cool coming up or you want to talk about something unique and something we're all about stories so uh open door anytime for sure love it and uh yeah we'll look you up when we're in minden all right flack i appreciate it all right take care dave appreciate it all right Awesome. Turn a little more. Five is terminate. Copy, go. Blue go trail. Go on the street. Go on the street. Thunderbird terminate. Thunderbird terminate. Two terminate. Two terminate. I terminate. Terminate. Okay, time's going to go in front of the line and uh, five, what do you got? My standby gen just fails. Copy all. Five turning behind the line. Okay, five and six, you guys are both cleared off. Uh, six, you can just chase five back. The time will stay in the range. We'll do a couple loops and we'll come on as well. No, David, I don't know why the FAA called.
They just said they wanted to talk to you about that flyby. Altitude. 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 The host of the Renegade Aviator, David Costa. All right, ladies and gentlemen, David Costa, the Renegade Aviator. You Renegade Aviator crew, you know who you are. You get a special, extended version of our show each and every week. Want to be part of my crew? I made it super easy. Go to RenegadeAV8R.com. Click Crew. That's how easy it is to join my crew. Check on ready now. In with the World records, baby. Boomers, check your sex. The next gen is here, and what we're going to do is fantastic. Go to renegadeaviator.com, click on world records. All right, we're wrapping this show up. Thank you to the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds, number eight, the narrator and advanced pilot, Jason Flack Markson. Really appreciate you coming on board. So let me wrap this whole thing up for you. People, who achieve excellence in this world are just like you and me. They grow up in towns and cities just like you and me. They face challenges just like you and me. They have setbacks, doubts, fears, and they have issues just like you and me. Excellence is not diversity, but excellence is diverse. Excellence in what you do matters. Your decisions, your choices, your response to obstacles matter. Take a chance. Take the next step forward. Get that no and say, so what? And choose excellence. You can reach that pinnacle and say, what's next? Become the fighter pilot and say, so what's next? Become a Thunderbird and say, What's next? Become that astronaut and say, who can I help? But imagine if we tell our people in this society that there's no hope, that the world is rigged against you, that you can't make it because somebody doesn't like you for, and insert your stupid reason there. Americans are not groups. Americans are individuals. Know this. Reject excuses, discrimination, and obstacles because they're always going to be there. There's nothing you can do to change that. Simply decide to be excellent. This is what these military demo teams show us. This is why we love to watch teams like the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds. Excellence demonstrated. Think about it. It's not that difficult. On the other hand, sure it is. If it wasn't difficult, it wouldn't matter so much. Be excellent, ladies and gentlemen. South Tower Thunderbird 5 at 2 ship over Craig. Request straight and full stop for 5 SFO airspace for number 6. Thunderbird 5, now tower report left base, runway 3 right. Thunderbird 5, left base for 3 right. Slow into 250. Stand by for some boards. Stand by gear, gear now. Thunderbird 5, gear right. Thunderbird 5, runway 3, right, wind 040 at 11, gust 17, clear to land, clear low approach. Thunderbird 5, clear to land, up to right. Thunderbird 6, on the go, request high key. 
Thunderbird 6, right turn out approved. Report high key out of below 10,000. Right turns runway 3, right. Squawk normal when able. Thunderbird 6, right for the right. High key out of below 10,000. This is David Costa in the air with my TS-11 Iskra jet and on air with you right now. I am the renegade aviator. See ya. See ya.